This Late Hour presents... The Genesis Problem. school we used to sing a hymn it went it is a thing most wonderful almost too wonderful to be after that the hymn rather went off the rails but those first two lines uh, have inspired me ever since inherent in this world view is that somehow Noah and his family were able to build a wooden ship that would house 14,000 individuals. There were 7,000 kinds, and then, so it was about 14,008 people. And these people were unskilled. As far as anybody knows, they had never built a wooden ship before. It is a thing most wonderful that on this once barren rock, orbiting a rather mediocre star on the edge of a rather ordinary galaxy, on this rock, a remarkable process called evolution by natural selection has given rise to the magnificent diversity of complexity of life. I need to know if she really thinks dinosaurs were here 4,000 years ago. That's an important. I want to know that. I really do. Because she's going to have the nuclear codes. You know, I, I want to know if she thinks dinosaurs were here 4,000 years ago. The elegance, the beauty, and the illusion of design which we see all around us, brought together by this mechanical, automatic, unplanned, unconscious process, evolution by natural selection. That's not just true, it's beautiful. And it I'm your host, Casey Knowlton. Well, welcome back to the podcast, everyone. Today we uh, continue in our series, The Genesis Problem, with part two of an interview I did with Dr. Ben Scripture of Scripture on Creation. And as we've been seeing through not only this series, but uh, several of the episodes leading up to it, that there is so much importance on our understanding of the book of Genesis and how we view the scriptures in that particular book, and whether or not we hold to a literal view of the book or not. I want to just briefly read through a familiar scripture that I've touched on before from Matthew 24. This is uh, from verses 36 through 42. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one left. Therefore stay awake, for you do not know 
on what day your Lord is coming. So here again, we just see the importance of a literal understanding of Genesis. For certainly here, Jesus seems to be operating in that literal view. He's relating his second coming to the flood account. This global judgment on the earth in which God flooded all of the earth and spared Noah and his family and many of the animals in order to repopulate the earth after the, the year-long flood uh, was over. So Jesus here refers to a, a flood, a very real event and judgment of all of mankind. And as we've been seeing through the interview, there are plenty of good scientific arguments in support of a very literal event, the flood and creation in our ancient past. Now, in regards to uh, the young earth aspect of this argument, I just want to touch on that very briefly. For I have heard from those who favor an old earth view that the Bible, nowhere does it, you know, specifically tell us the age of the earth. And this is true. It does not explicitly say anywhere the earth is this old. Uh, fill in the blank with however many years. However, the scriptures do imply the age of the earth. And there's a couple reasons for that if we understand this to be uh, taken as literally. And, and first and foremost, as we've been talking about with the flood, if a global flood event happened, what would we expect to find? We would expect to find billions of dead things laid down by mud, buried in rock layers all over the world. And what do we find? That exact thing. The whole idea of these stratified layers uh, from most secular scientists would, would be that these layers happened gradually over millions of years as sediment and things were laid down very slowly. However, you don't get this kind of robust fossil record, especially with the kind of preservation we're seeing in many of these fossils. I mean, things in the middle of eating their lunch, animals eating each other, uh, giving birth, you know, clearly in the middle of trying to, with footprints, they were, you know, running. Uh, there, there was this, clearly something was happening where they were caught off guard and buried. Uh, and some running for their, their lives as we're finding the footprints and uh, some of the dinosaurs, their necks, their necks arched back as if they're trying to gasp for air. This signifies a very rapid burial. Not, not only do we find them fossilized just, you know, in their kind of daily existence, eating and, you know, uh, giving birth and, and just living, uh, they were taken off guard. But also, we find that these things are so well preserved, as Dr. Ben talked about, the blood and the proteins and the DNA being found in the dinosaur fossils, which should, by just a basic scientific analysis, should have long been uh, done away with. That uh, these types of tissues cannot last millions of years. This suggests a rapid burial uh, which has preserved them over all of this time. How much time? Well, again, the Bible does not explicitly tell us the age of the earth or when the flood happened, but it does imply it. For if we look at this evidence, and then also the genealogies, which uh, account the family lineage of Adam down to Noah and so on, uh, if you extrapolate that out and even account for some missing genealogies, 
There's no way you have millions of years. And so just from a basic reading and understanding of the scriptures, the scriptures imply a younger earth. And the evidence seems to support that. And so I just want to come alongside and encourage those who would support a young earth. You're not a flat earther. You're not ignorant. Just because the secular scientific community and their uh, array of experts say you're wrong doesn't make it so. For we trust the word of God, not the word of man. And when we put many of these things to copious scientific testing, we find there are so many assumptions that are being made about this data. And based on all the points of evidence that Dr. Ben shared, we can see there is great support for understanding and taking uh, the Bible, and particularly the book of Genesis, uh, Genesis literally, which does seem to imply a young earth between six to 10,000 years old. Now, going back to Matthew 24, so Jesus there is assuming this literal Genesis in his worldview, which is very important in how we approach the last days and our view of the rest of Scripture. What he also does here, though, is he warns that the coming of the Lord will be very sudden, just as the flood was for all those upon the earth at that time. And he says, don't be asleep. So really, the, my hope for this podcast is that it will help you to be alert and to stay awake, just as Jesus commands us to do here in Matthew 24. That is why we are taking time to go through and look at why this evidence is, and look at why the book of Genesis is so important, because so much of what comes later in scripture references back to this book with the creation event, the fall in the garden, the flood, and uh, even the Tower of Babel, all very significant points of biblical history that if we just dismiss away as myth, create vast theological problems. And I'd like to suggest we don't need to dismiss them. It is better to take the word of God and to trust his word, to take God at his word, than it is to trust the mouths and the minds of a bunch of experts who are looking backwards in time trying to tell us what happened when they weren't there. And their theories, quite frankly, are just full of holes and contradictions. Now, before we jump back into the interview, let's review what happened last episode. Along with getting to know a bit about Dr. Ben and his testimony of faith, he did share what he considers to be the top five points of evidence pointing to a literal genesis, which also uh, implies a young earth, as I mentioned. Now, those points of evidence were these. The reliability of the Bible was the first, and just the integrity of Scripture, that we can trust the Word of God, and that also the amazing amounts of archaeological evidence that are being discovered just continually come alongside and support the scriptures. Whether we're talking about the Dead Sea Scrolls or he mentioned uh, archaeological evidence that support the life of David. I could I could go on and on. I mean, and for those who have not seen uh, the Tim Mahoney films, which he's done a great uh, collection of, of films on the Exodus and the historicity of the Exodus and how, uh, based on a bunch of experts, um, and in their view of the Exodus, how they've been saying for years there's no evidence because they have been so set in their view of when it happened 
that the evidence for it, which is actually in an earlier period of Egyptian history, the Middle Kingdom uh, period, I mean, just ample evidence supporting uh, the Israelites in Egypt. But these experts will just refuse to accept that because it does not fit their um, their worldview. It does not fit their their presumptions they've already made about the text and about the data. And that's the same thing we see with so much of what's going on with creation and the flood. So his first point of evidence was the reliability of the scriptures. His second was all the soft tissue they're finding in the dinosaur fossils, which is becoming a common thing that is happening. And I think many of the paleontologists and the scientists working on these things are starting to look for it because of uh, these events they've read about and seen. So now it's becoming something where they're actually really starting to look for this. And like he said, they're trying to come up with these explanations that really uh, hold no scientific uh, credibility. There's no, you know, no scientific weight behind their argument of how these could have lasted millions and millions of years. It's a hand-waving argument, as he says. So this has been one of the main and just honestly just... Um, breathtaking points of evidence if you start to really look into this. And it's unfortunate that we can't have an honest conversation about dinosaurs without being considered ignorant if we were to suggest that they were here uh, not as long ago as we were being led to believe. His next point of evidence, uh, his third, was uh, the mitochondrial DNA evidence, which points back to not only creation with Eve, but also to the flood, where uh, basically, mankind or humankind break down into three main people groups, which would have been uh, the three sons of Noah and their wives as they dispersed and began to repopulate the earth. He also mentioned that about 80% of all the animal species have a population explosion at the same point in the past. Of course, which that point in the past is assuming an evolutionary point of view, but it also has these secular scientists scratching their heads going, why all of a sudden is all these species coming out repopulating at the same time. Of course, we understand this would be because they were coming off the ark and repopulating the earth. And his fourth point was that the mutation rate in humans is happening too rapidly for our species to have been here millions of years. He referenced a book called Genetic Entropy by John C. Sanford, a former evolutionist turned creationist based on all the evidence he was finding as he was doing this research that essentially we can't be millions of years old because the mutation rate, <laughs> we, we wouldn't exist anymore based on the mutations. That though they talk about mutation in the evolutionary circles as if it's a good thing, it really is not a good thing. And mutation is what leads to all these defects we are seeing uh, in our health and in our bodies as time goes on. So that was his fourth point. And then the fifth point was basically that the human lifespan, though it's increasing uh incrementally it's you know basically it doesn't ever go past 120 years which is also recorded in genesis when god says he will not strive with man forever and then he shall live no more than 120 years which we reference in the interview now we're going to jump back into that last point as dr ben continues to uh, expand and explain on that point as we continue into the interview with dr ben scripture of scripture on creation ministries
God intentionally has done this to bring face to man face to face with the idea that you are uh, you are dying. And there's nothing that you can do to change it, even though man loves to promote this idea of, oh, genetic engineering, and, and we're going we're gonna to fix all of our genetic problems, and we're going to start living longer and longer. Research shows that that isn't happening. Even though the average lifespan is uh, increasing, the maximum is not. And, and by the way, that's my fifth point. Like I said, my, my uh, evidences are all from the uh, biological point of view. So this doesn't talk anything about uh, from geology, from astronomy and all these other perspectives that uh, other creation scientists are experts in. Sure. But I think some, you know, some of those are very, very powerful. The, the aging research that is going on is showing that uh, 120 or a little less is the maximum lifespan of human beings. And even though the, average or the mean is increasing, the maximum is not. And I would uh, submit that that is, that points back to the trustworthiness of what God said in Genesis chapter six, yeah. um, where he said, uh, you, you know, why don't we, why don't I read that rather than just sort of referring to it? Sure. Uh, Genesis six, five, then the Lord saw that uh, the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. When, when God saw this, of course, he, he found Noah. But one of the things that he was thinking about was in verse 3, my spirit shall not strive with man forever because he is also flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. So God's intent uh, in my understanding and the way I interpret that is that as a result of the flood, he was going to bring the lifespan of man down to 120 years. And uh, instead of these people being able to live for 900 years and just develop and devise uh, grander and more horrific ways of sinning, he said, that's it. 120 is the max. And re aging research is demonstrating the validity of that. So that's my fifth uh, evidence for why we have a, a young earth. The account of the flood in, in uh, changing earth, uh, and this was on the order of uh, five to 6,000 years ago, again, shows us the, the length of the period of time the earth has been around is, is young, is short. Well, those are some fantastic evidences. One last point of clarity, and I know this is not your field of expertise, mm -hmm. but if there was a global flood, which we are told in scripture there was, you know, it would have had a profound impact on the whole surface of the earth. Mm -hmm. And it seems to me, you had mentioned earlier, you know, the secular scientists are approaching these different things through all of these assumptions. And it seems to me many in the, you know, geologists and such are also approaching with this assumption. These, these layers we see must have been laid down over millions of years because right. they're operating under the assumption that they need the deep time, the millions of years in order to get evolution. And yet, what we see is that if you had a flood, you would get all of this layering. It also assumes there would be no kind of catastrophes or any other outstanding circumstances that would affect the layering. And so it just seems interesting to me that, again, that sort of iron clenched fist, you know, holding to the worldview, even though looking at the evidence very easily supports 
a global flood laying down all the sediment and Indeed. providing the fossil record. Yeah, it definitely does. I mean, from what we observe, we see that layers that encompass the entire earth are laid down rapidly. When we watch them, when we actually see floods, we see that's how it happens. Uh, so this slow erosion idea, well, that just grinds everything up. You don't get distinct layers. What you end up with is this, uh, all kinds of just gradual uh, mixing together of different types of mud and silt and so forth. But when a flood happens, you get a rapid layering and then one distinct layer upon another. So yeah, I'm not uh, an expert on uh, stratification, but I do know that what we see happen is exactly what we see in, in the stratification of the earth. Again, those are all just assumptions of, of deep time. And what's telling is that when we you know, are looking at these supposedly million-year-old fossils, we're finding these tissues in them, in these layers, which would suggest they were laid down rapidly not very long ago. Right. And it's, right. Ama- it's amazing how, <laughs> despite that very strong evidence, it's still... Um, looked at as sort of the, the red-headed stepchild of, of, of uh, scientific theories to suggest such a thing. Oh, right. I mean, it's just, it's intolerable. And it's not even, and see, they don't even interact with someone who would suggest that the, the dating techniques are incorrect because uh, they just say, well, that's like, I'm going to argue with you about a flat earth. Well, no, <laughs> it's not. Uh, there is plenty of evidence that the earth is round and, and the Bible doesn't teach that. Unfortunately, some of our brethren, and I say that when I say that, I mean, these, a lot of these people are born again and their, their motivation is even good. They are confused and they think that they have to literally accept what some of these teachers are telling them that the Bible says the world is flat. Look at this verse, look at that verse. And so their motivation is going, well, I believe the Bible, so that must be true. Well, that's ludicrous. Um, so, So anyway, but, but the, 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 uh, the skeptics, the critics love to just lump all the uh, Bible believers together and say, yeah, you're all just a bunch of flat earthers. When uh, there are uh, highly trained scientists who are looking at these evidences that we've discussed. And, uh, you know, obviously they're not flat earthers, but they are challenging the dating techniques of, of the evolutionists. Would it be fair to say that in the same way we hold scripture in high regard as an errant, as infallible, as the word of God, that many of these scientists in the different fields hold to some of these dating methods in the same kind of way, almost in a, yeah. in a religious sense. Yeah, orthodoxy is, yeah. Is, is a very, very real thing. Absolutely. Yes. And that would explain why they're so reluctant to accept anything that would sort of go against their deeply held belief about mm-hmm. Absolutely. The aging. Um, so all that to say, you've provided some great evidence here, some, some wonderful points. Let me see if I can remember them all. So we have the, uh, basically the Bible, the inerrancy of scripture. We have all the evidence in the fossil record of the dinosaurs and showing that uh, they cannot be millions of years old based on what we're finding in the fossils. You have the mitochondria DNA going back and seeing the, the three ladies uh, for the origins of man after the flood and then the animal kingdom as well. And then you have genetic entropy mm-hmm. and then the aging evidence. Mm-hmm. Is there some kind of specific term they use? And as far as the aging evidence, is that just uh, uh, no, I think it's just, uh, 
uh, you know, pretty much they've just been uh, really astounded that because the assumption is, you know, if you can picture a bell curve, if you're moving the, the peak, the, the top of the bell to the right on your graph, well, then you expect the, uh, the bottom to be moving out as well. You know, the whole bell should be spreading out and becoming wider, but it's not. The, the maximum at the bottom of the curve is pinned. And so the bell is no longer looking like a bell. It's sort of distorting. And the, the top of the, the curve is shifting to the right, but the bottom isn't. And they're astounded that this is uh, happening and they, they can't explain it, but it, it's definitely uh, something that's being observed. Which is incredible. They can't explain it, but it's already in the Bible. I did yeah, but it that. is in the Bible. There's a there's an explanation <laughs> for it in the Bible. I find that fascinating. So so many you know well-meaning people uh, within the religious community would question the young Earth view, saying, you know, it doesn't really matter as it relates to the gospel message. You know, basically mm-hmm. the the life, death, burial, and resurrection, ascension of Jesus Christ, the saving work of Christ for the person who would turn to, to them, repent, and believe in His saving work. So what difference? You know, they would say, what difference does the flood and dinosaurs and all the things that we've just discussed have to do with bringing the message of of salvation to the lost? You know, as a Christian, isn't this an issue that falls outside of our orthodoxy, essentially? Hmm. Uh, In essence, does it really matter if we hold to a different view, old earth, young earth? Ultimately, doesn't it just matter that we believe in Christ and share the gospel? Well, that's a that's a, a good question, and it's one that's uh, near and dear to my heart because uh, I struggled with with this. You know, I mentioned that I was far from the Lord when I was in college, and so I I was trained in evolution. I went to Berkeley, and, and yet I always did have questions about it. But then when the Lord turned my life around, I really struggled then with okay, so now what am I going to do with my belief in evolution? Um. So first of all, let me point out that your understanding of creation doctrine is not an issue of salvation. And I, uh, I think it's important that we understand that. There are all kinds of doctrines that born-again believers have differences of opinion on, not just creation. Sure. Thankfully, these things are not required for saving faith. I mean, if we had to have all our doctrine in a row before we were saved, <laughs> well, that's absurd. And of course, there's a lot of people that, that go down that route. Oh, if you don't believe what my church believes, you know, if you don't believe what my denomination believes or my little uh, cloister or whatever, you know, well, then you know, you're, you're not one of us and you're not saved. That's, that's devastating to... Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the, the gospel. But I do think that when a person compromises, uh, let, we'll just deal with, with our, our topic, uh, creation. They are setting themselves up for some real pitfalls because what they indeed are doing is they are changing the simple understanding of scripture to fit whatever. And someone else then can come along and challenge the next thing. Well, okay, so if that's not what the Bible means there in Genesis 1 or in Genesis 6 or whatever, why do you say that the Bible means this when it comes to Jonah? Or why does, do you think the Bible means this when it comes to uh, David and Goliath? And of course, ultimately, 
why do you think the Bible means this when it comes to Jesus actually literally raising from the dead? And Casey, that's where it always ends up coming around to, the resurrection, because mm-hmm. belief in the resurrection is an issue of salvation. Yes. Paul makes the gospel very clear. The New Testament makes the gospel very clear. And it is not just that Jesus died for my sins. The gospel is that Jesus died for my sins and raised from the dead. There is a miraculous element in the gospel. It requires faith to trust his word that Jesus literally came, died, and rose again. And so when we start tinkering, quote unquote, with the miracles, starting with creation, the the enemy always ends up bringing it around to the resurrection. And then what do we have? Well, we've just got this story, this little Easter bunny butterfly story of, well, just live a good life. And, but I mean, this idea that you're going to be raised from the dead and live forever. Come on, grow up. Let's be sophisticated. Let's be intellectual. You know, you choose to live quote unquote, a good life. I choose to live, you know, a hedonistic Mm -hmm. life. What's the difference? That is where the gospel message of you're a sinner and you need Jesus to pay for your sins by dying on the cross. And he proved that he did this by literally raising from the dead. And you have the hope of eternal life. That is the essence of the gospel. And so I don't have to have a correct understanding of creation to believe that Jesus died for my sins and he raised from the dead. Um, But (laughs) if you compromise on these miracles, If you start saying that that's not what the Bible really means, you are setting yourself up for uh, some real uh, intellectual crises down the road. And uh, so I I do think that it's important. I think that there are numerous uh, doctrines that are based on those early chapters of Genesis. And let's face it, we are all inconsistent here and there. Uh, I am the last person on earth that would say, well, I have every doctrine correct. I mean, I have no more reason to ever study the scriptures and change my view on this, that, or the other thing. Now, Casey, I'm not talking about throwing out the deity of Christ and you know, all these kinds of things, but of course. I, I trust you understand what I mean. I mean, we all adjust. I look back at what I believed 10 years ago, and I see changes in my understanding of scripture here and there. I hope everyone does. But uh when we start throwing out some of these basic doctrines or say they're not important, uh, I would beg to differ. I think that these things are important and our goal should be to try and come to a proper understanding of scripture through our lifetime of studying and getting to know not only the Bible, but getting to know the, know our God better and better through the years. You know, for centuries, the church did seem to hold quite closely to a very literal understanding of Genesis, Mm -hmm. especially those first 11 chapters, which are the most debated uh, in this day and age. And more and more, we now have seen this sort of disintegration of Genesis within the church, the literal view of the book now really being the exception to the rule. Mm -hmm. So why, why have so many in the faith abandoned this for other interpretations, even in light of all the evidence you've already shared? Yeah, that, that's a, a legitimate question. And I, w- I would say that that um, decades ago, and especially back in Darwin's day, so we're talking over 100 years ago, 
there, there was very little, um, might we say, scientific evidence to refute what appeared to be uh, the scientists presenting very, very strong reasons to really question what the Bible said. Uh, scientists were presenting contradictory information, it seemed, to the Genesis record. And so it put people in a real quandary. For example, the, the reconstruction theory or gap theory, as it's sometimes called, I can sympathize with those brothers and sisters uh, of generations ago that were under extreme pressure. And so they came up with a way of explaining how you could get all this time, squeeze it between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2. They, they believed the Bible literally um, but they sort of tinkered a little bit with their interpretation of Genesis 1-2. I sympathize with that. I'm not saying that they were correct in doing that, but I sympathize with it. But now we have so much evidence that I don't think that there's any uh, excuse for not, inter not looking into these things and recognizing that what the evolutionary scientific community is presenting is just wrong. And there is plenty to contradict it. I would say that that initial pressure that they felt intellectually um, is the first reason, but that was um, something that was generations ago, a couple generations, even, you know, we might say even up to um, several decades ago. The second reason, and I think the reason that so much of these evolutionary proposals are held on, held on to today is, is pressure to conform to this very idea that we've been discussing. Oh, if you believe that the earth is young, if you believe in creation, you know, you're just a, a wacko. And people don't like to be uh, pigeonholed like that. People don't like to be called silly and foolish. And so there's that just simple pressure from the world to conform. And that unfortunately is something that a Christian dare not do. And yet they are doing it in droves. They wanna be accepted. So often the explanation is, oh, we want to have common ground so we can present the gospel to these people. I would submit that the foundation of progressive creation, uh, Hugh Ross and, and his disciples, started with the desire to, quote unquote, have this common ground so that people wouldn't just dismiss them as quote-unquote creationists, and they could then talk to them about the gospel. Well, that may be a good motivation, but from my perspective, is the first thing that we do when we're going to introduce a person to the Bible to tell them about Jesus Christ is to compromise the first chapter of the Bible and say, well, but that's not true. That's not what that means. What kind of a, a foundation are we uh, giving this person when we then turn around and tell them, well, you're a sinner and Jesus died for your sins. Uh, he raised from the dead and they go, well, how do you know that that's true if Genesis, uh, the account of creation isn't true? So I do not buy this um, idea of, well, we're trying to form a common ground. We want them to at least be willing to listen to us. I don't buy that. I don't think that that's um, a valid way of uh, beginning our presentation of the gospel. We need to be honest and say, you're a sinner. And, uh, and down deep inside, they know, they know that. And uh, just deal with the message of the gospel. And if you get into some of the, the objections 
about, well, you know, I don't think I can accept the Bible because there are so many errors in it. Go look, you understand the major points of the gospel that you're a sinner and you can understand that Jesus came and died for your sins. This is the way God is healing your sin problem. And uh, down deep inside, you know, death itself is a contradiction. If, if the Holy Spirit will work in your heart to trust the word of God that Jesus raised from the dead, uh, don't let the devil throw all these other objections and all these other obstacles up to uh, prevent you from trusting the word of God and the essentials of the gospel. And some of these other details and things, uh, trust him that, that he can work in your mind to deal with some of these other questions that you have down the road. But all the devil wants to do is prevent you from coming to saving faith through things that are not salvation issues. Sure. Uh, you know, and it seems to me as we go back and look at Jesus and the way he operated and the things he spoke about, he often referred back to Genesis. Mm -hmm. And it seems to me that his worldview held the assumption that Genesis was true, that there was an Adam and an Eve, that there was a flood. In fact, he speaks of those things in the scriptures. Absolutely. I, I just So I find it interesting that there would be those who would be able to sort of find a way around that, given Christ's own worldview assumptions that we see in scripture. Yeah, well, you know, Casey, we have we all have an amazing ability to just compartmentalize, and uh, when you take a step back and look at the bigger picture, you know, all those inconsistencies are uncomfortable. So we tend to just uh, want to not look at the forest. We'll just look at a specific tree, and and we get that one figured out, and and go from there. But if we're willing to be honest and ask the Lord to just help us continue to grow and be more consistent in our, uh, in our faith, he'll do that. And uh, yet it's a, it's a long and sometimes painful process, but uh, I, I have experienced that and continue to, but especially in this area of creation and evolution, I experienced that, that, that growth. Uh, I went from, as I said, uh, a simple, you know, Christian, simple faith, to a backslidden Christian, to a theistic evolutionist, if you want to call it that, to then a, uh, uh, a believer that was willing to, even with a lot of questions, accept the Bible, took it at face value, my desire being to understand what the Bible means, which is defined by what the author meant, not by what I want it to mean. And uh, so my... my uh, mission in life as uh, as an individual is to continue to just be more consistent uh, with my understanding of the meaning of scripture and then the more difficult point frankly being apply it <laughs> in my uh, in my daily life yes yeah, that's the challenge for us all I think so dr scripture we see in our time uh, fast erosion and a full assault on marriage family gender, sexuality, and much of this is even getting into the church. Do you think there is a correlation between uh, our views on ancient history, what's been revealed in Genesis, and the abandoning of Genesis to what we're seeing happening today? I, I do. 
uh, I don't want to necessarily make it a direct correlation, um, but uh, I, I do think that, you know, in the days of Noah, you know, things just got so bad that as the Lord pointed out, the thoughts and intentions of uh, his heart was just continually evil. And we just seem to see almost a, a repeat of that. You know, a lot of times, Casey, I think how bad must the world have been for the Lord to have come to the point where he actually grieved making the earth and he just destroyed it all. Yes. I, I frankly don't think that we're to that point. I know everybody says, oh, how could it get any worse? I think obviously we can get a lot worse, yes. but I certainly think that we see uh, movement in this direction. And yes. it, it seems to me that especially even within the church, this issue of compromising how we interpret the Bible is something that is obviously spreading well beyond just creation. And so when a person basically becomes comfortable with, well, I know that's what it sounds like the Bible means, but uh, I don't like that because it makes me look stupid to actually believe that the earth is only 7,000 years old or that you know evolution isn't true and whatnot. Well, when you compromise a simple understanding of that, then it becomes easier to then start compromising on also what the Bible obviously presents as sin in the arena of some of those things that you mentioned, uh, Casey, especially in, in this day of sexual ch changes and, and defining of gender, uh, what a family is and what a family isn't. This stuff is no longer just creeping into the church. It is a, uh, a tsunami of changing our, our simple understanding of scripture. And uh, I, I do think in large measure, it starts with uh, our willingness, uh, a person's willingness to just ignore simple uh, principles of how we understand the meaning of the Bible. And it truly did begin in great measure with our understanding of what the Bible simply says about creation. Well, and I'm reminded in the beginning, the, what was what it was that the uh, serpent that the enemy said to Eve? Did God really say? Well, that's a great, uh, great uh, observation. That that challenging. Um, not did he say anything, but you know, is that really really meant? That's an excellent point, Casey. Because <laughs> I mean, we do, as you've said, see this compromise just coming in, flooding in, really, mm -hmm. and yes. the it's willingness. Yes, and that willingness to say, well, did, that's not really what God meant, is it? Mm -hmm. And it just it strikes me as interesting going back to the Genesis account. Right. So given everything we've discussed today, if you could give one message to the church, every church could hear this message, a unified message directly to the church in our present age, what would it be? Well, <laughs> that's a tough question. I mean, when you're just limited to one thing, I mean, it'd be easy just to say, well, you know, the gospel, Jesus died for your sins and raised from the dead. But I want to qualify this with, you know, we're talking to the church, right? So yes, if we're talking yes. to those that are, are really uh, born again, they've got the spirit in there that can can tweak their conscience and, and they have a desire down deep to, to follow the Lord. Uh, they trust the Lord. I guess I would have a similar message to what, what Peter uh, said on his uh, uh, deathbed, so to speak. His, his swan song, you could say, is Second Peter. And, you know, 
what Peter kept doing in his uh, second epistle was reminding uh, the believers of things. He keeps saying, know this, know this, know this. I'm reminding you of this. I'm reminding you of that. And so I guess my message would be that the word of God is just that. This Bible that we have is the word of God. And so we need to pay attention to it. It is not something that uh, is a matter of our own uh, interpretation. And so Peter, you know, points this out very, very specifically in chapter one, verses 20 and 21. And so if, if I had a message or if I was just going to give a couple of verses to the church, I would uh, echo Peter's words. Peter said, but know this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. And the church needs to take God's word for what it says. It is just that. It's God's word. And we need to pay closer attention to it, not tinker with it. And uh, even though it's tough, it's, it's one thing to know what it says. And we all know it's a more difficult thing to do what it says. But that is what we've been called to, and that is what the church needs to come back to. That's well said. Now, before we end, is there any other additional points or issues you wanted to clarify or touch on? Uh, well, I uh, we've had a wonderful chat. I think we've uh, said a lot. And you know what Solomon said with the multiplying of words, <laughs> there's more opportunities for error. I'm sure I've probably misspoken on a few things. So uh, uh I guess the only thing I would add is from my own personal testimony, you know, I understand, especially young people that are struggling with uh, trusting what the Bible says uh, in the arena of science or, or, or in other areas. But I, I just want to say that uh, in my experience, uh, for what it's worth, if you just really do delve into what the Bible says, and study it carefully, and then look at what um, we can understand from whether it's science or history or anything else. This book is trustworthy, and uh, as a believer, you're going to trust your eternal. You're going to entrust your eternal soul to what this book says. But the thing is, um, what it says when it refers to science or history or anything else, it is accurate there as well. And so I would just uh, say that I commend this book to any young person. And uh, this word is trustworthy. It is indeed God's word. So where can people find you, Dr. Scripture, if they want to know more? Well, uh, I have a, a website that I would like to improve. And maybe one of these days I will here soon, but it's Scripture on creation.org. So I use my name to uh, sort of uh, do this play on words because the scripture that really matters is not Ben's scripture. The scripture that matters is the word of God. So I sort of use this play on words, scripture on creation. And uh, I do try to bring some of my experience and uh, education to bear on what I teach but ultimately what really matters is the, the word of God, scripture. So my ministry is called Scripture on Creation, those three words. 
Uh, I have a radio broadcast that uh, is not national, but it's uh, uh, regional. I do also, though, have a podcast. Appreciate you letting me be on your podcast, Casey. And my podcast, again, is Scripture on Creation. So I have Facebook, which I do very little with anymore, um, sort of backing off of Facebook. But virtually anything uh, in social media, wherever you would find me, I uh, have been fortunate to be able to always just use Scripture on Creation. So if you look that up, Google Scripture on Creation, you'll find my podcast, my website, my uh, radio program. And uh, I appreciate you letting me uh, get my my little uh, ministry title out there, Casey. Absolutely. And we'll make sure that we have links to the podcast and the website and such in the show notes. Great. And I just want to thank you so much for coming on today, giving your time and and generously answering all the questions that I've had for you today. Well, I uh, have enjoyed it very much. All right, sir. Well, thank you so much, and God bless you. God bless you. Thank you again for joining me for this second part of a two-part interview with Dr. Ben Scripture of Scripture on Creation Ministries. In the coming weeks, we will continue our look at the Genesis problem, And I also have an exciting announcement that next month I will be doing an interview with Andrew Jones of Discovered Media about the probable location of the remains of the actual Noah's Ark. If you're enjoying this podcast, please give the show a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And be sure to click the follow or subscribe button on whichever platforms you happen to be following the show on so you can keep up to date on all the episodes as they were released. If you'd like to support the show, please click on the ACAST supporter link or visit my Patreon page, which is also in the show description. Until our next episode, stay on the alert, dear Christian. Until next time, God bless. You have been listening to this late hour. Your contribution helps pay our fees, improve our equipment, and build better content. It is my hope that your continued support of our show may bring future interviews and exclusives. Our goal is to always be improving our show so that the church may be strengthened in our mission to bring salt and light to this present darkness. May God richly bless you.